Hello and thank you for listening to episode 352 of 60MW. I'm Dave and this is another of our interview shows. And in this one I chat with Mark Ribbler, a man whose music has been a part of my life for a long time now. So much to chat with him about. It was absolutely superb to have a chat with Mark. Really, really good of him to give me so much of his time. It's also a video show that you can watch on our YouTube channel as well. So head on over there if you want to see the guitars that you'll hear him talk about, if you want to see him playing the guitar that he's going to play as well. And if you're not already subscribed while you're there, subscribe to us and don't miss out on any of the future videos that we're going to put up on there. Mark's got a new solo LP coming out in June called The Whole World Awaits You. And from that is a song called Shattered that I'm going to play at the end of the show. Again, so much to talk about. Let's get on with it. Sit back, relax and get comfortable as me and Mark have a good old chat about music and more. Well, first of all, as always, I always thank the guests, and it's great that you can join me, Mark. I've been so excited. I've got lots that I want to chat about. Even more excited, it's one of these shows where I can see you as well. I can see you. I can see lots of great guitars behind you as well. So thank you very much for giving me some of your time today, Mark. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. Uh, And yeah, yeah, there's probably too many guitars, but they all have their... (laughs) I guess there's never too many because they all have their purpose and they have their voices that contribute in different ways. Yeah. You know? Do you have a favorite of those that are behind you? You know, um, that's a good question. Um, is it like, pick, is it like picking favorite? Is it like picking favorite children and all, you know, that sort of question where you love it them is, all man. really. Yeah. You know, my favorite, I think my, if I had to have one guitar, I think the most versatile guitar in the universe is is a Telecaster, is a Fender Telecaster. Um, although I have a Nash Telecaster, which is very much like the old. It's like the old Fenders. It's it's made in it's made in the states, and uh, they actually relic it. You know, they make it look like it's old. But yeah. this guitar, uh, which looks very much like a like a you know like a fifty one Broadcaster or something. Um, this is probably the most versatile guitar in the world. Um, where Strat, a Stratocaster is much more specific. Yeah. Um, and uh, a Les Paul is, very, you know, very versatile. Strat's very versatile, but uh, using the tone control and the pickup combinations and the volume control, you can you can cover. I think the broadest area of uh, music with a Telecaster. Yeah. It, it's it it has a lot of character but it's also very it's a it's a humble guitar you know it's a it's a it's a great working man's guitar a little yeah. bit different to your first nylon stringed guitar that you got as a kid then yeah you know i did get it my first guitar wasn't it was a sokova nylon string guitar and um i didn't it was just that was the guitar that they we i they offered like a couple weeks of guitar lessons at this music store, you know? <laughs> and uh, I didn't know. It was like, you know, it was, a, it was kind of a crappy guitar, but, and, and also when you play nylon strings, you don't develop calluses very, uh, uh-huh, takes yeah, a while, yeah. you know, cause it's so they're soft. Yeah. You know? But I just started actually, I've had this, this other uh, nylon string guitar. Uh, it's an Aria. It's probably from the mid seventies. And, um, I view every once in a while, it's just, it's a whole other voice. You know I mean? I, I play a lot of acoustic guitars on my, and I write, usually write on acoustic guitar, yeah. but the nylon string has a, a, 
a, a softer voice, you know? So, um, yeah, but that's that's very interesting that you knew that. I had a nylon string was the first guitar. I mean, you know? obviously, you know, you're very, very talented with music. You were born to work within music. Why why the guitar when it, you know, of all the instruments that there are? Is there any particular reason that you gravitated towards that? Yeah, and I, I don't feel like... Uh, I don't feel like I had any say in the matter. I, I, um, I had an older cousin. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And, um, at nine years old, we moved to New Jersey and it was, it was tremendous culture shock in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I lived in the, in the housing projects and all my friends were, they were black and Irish and Jewish and Puerto Rican and Italian. It was a true melting pot. And we moved to New Jersey and it was all, it was, I, I, it was it was mostly white. I would say it was ninety nine percent white, but there was also an undercurrent of of uh, prejudice and and racism that I never experienced before. So that was that was troubling. And and at that young age, it it um it affected me. You know, I grew up in, in you know I was born in the sixties. I kind of grew up more in the seventies. But I remember as a child seeing on TV blacks being hose you know like fire like fire hoses hosing them down and, and attack dogs you know attacking them and and images of of lynchings you know of people you know hanging from trees you know and this affected me greatly it's like why why is why is this why are these people being treated like yeah, that yeah. you know and they were my and my my parents didn't instill any any to to them it was like they were our friends they were welcome in our home it was never anything. It's like, well, he's black. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't hang out with him. There was never any of that. So I was very affected by it. And anyway, my, we went to visit my cousin who still lived in Brooklyn and he was two years older and I always looked up to him and he, I went to his house this one time and he had a guitar and, um, and he'd already taken a couple lessons and he knew, he knew some chords. And I was just like, that was it, man. I never turned back. That was like the Holy grail. And I didn't even realize that, that, I, that I, at that moment, the, the, the kind of decision that would affect the rest of my life was being made and it wasn't conscious, you know, it was just sort of uh, synchronicity or, you know, uh, yeah. some kind of uh, cosmic occurrence, you know, and that's what got me through, man. It, it's, you know, it's always gotten me through like dealing with challenges in life and, and, you know, struggles. Um, it was someone, I, it was a place I could always turn. And it was always, as long as I gave it unconditional love, I got it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so what I put into it, I got back, you know, and, and I used to, I, I wanted so badly, even I started at 11 years old and I just wanted to be a, I really wanted to be a great musician from the beginning. And I, and I put a lot of time in. So by the time I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, I could really, I could play. And then I, I started playing with people much older that, you know, they were playing in, I started playing in clubs at a very young age. And, and um, it's sort of like the thing that's kept me alive and on the planet. And it's uh, led me to meeting great people and, and having uh, transcendent experiences, you know, and uh, yeah, so. I mean, that's were, how it happened. My cousin, you know, yeah. I, my cousin Stephen. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Like just things like that, how it can affect the course of your life. You know, you go there, there's the guitar, and then yeah. that took you on this path. 
It really is quite amazing when you look back on it. It is. It's such a, you know, it, it, it's in a moment, you know, it's, it's like a, and, and maybe, maybe that day, maybe if his guitar was in the closet and he didn't feel like yeah, playing yeah. it, you know, I would have, cause I, you know, you always have that when you, at that age, you always have someone that's like, you kind of look up to them, yeah, you know, you're yeah. like, they're cool, man. For some reason they're, you know, they're just a little bit cooler than other people. And, um, he, you know, he always, he still plays, but more as a, a hobby, you know, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, that was, uh, that became the center of the universe at a tender age. <laughs> and you were only 17 when you joined Nightflyer as well, weren't you? 17. Um, yeah, well, Nightflyer was a real turning point. Um, um, I was, I started writing songs at about 15, but mostly music. I, I, I didn't really get a handle. On, I didn't start thinking about writing lyrics a little bit later, mm-hmm. but um, the, the lead singer and, and songwriter, this guy, Ron Orlando, it was his band Nightflyer. Uh, I answered an ad in a, in a, a local New Jersey paper. Um, and it said, whatever, you know, a Jersey original band, uh, look, seeking guitarist and recording at record plant. Now record plant for those that don't know was this studio in New York city where, by the way, Jimi Hendrix recorded his electric Ladyland album before he opened the electric Ladyland studios. Uh, John Lennon did his first couple solo records there. If not even more than that, even most of his solo records, Um, uh, you know, uh, Aerosmith, uh, you know, Toys in the Attic, Johnny Winter, Still Alive and Well, Kiss's first couple albums. I mean, really half the the the, uh, sonic landscape of our youth was recorded (laughs) there. So I was like, I got to go audition for this band, you know. And, and I really liked their music, you know, and um, at that time I was practicing a lot. And um, these guys were, they were like a, a more traditional rock and roll band with, with a Jersey kind of, you know, there was like a, the singer had like a little bit of a Southside Johnny thing, but not because he was into Southside Johnny. It was just, there was an R&B influence, you know, um, which is interesting that I would be attracted to that and then meeting St- uh, Stevie, so many Stevie Van Zandt, so many years yeah, later. Yeah. You know? uh, but um, we went in, I, I auditioned, and th- these guys were like 10, 15 years older than me, but they, they, saw, they saw how hungry I was for the gig, and I, I learned the music that I needed to. I came very prepared, and they said, Great, we want you in the band, and uh, we're going this Saturday, we're going to Record Plant to continue recording our record. Oh, great. So our their friend, this guy, Paul Prestopino, he was, as it turned out, he was the head mate. He was head of maintenance, the maintenance department at the studio, but he's also a phenomenal musician that played all string instruments. You know, he played mandolin and banjo and, and uh, dobro. And, and um, he, in fact, he played on a lot of those records. You know, he, he played on toys in the attic. He played on Aerosmith rocks, um, Johnny winter records. If, whenever they needed a utility guy, which is what they call someone that played many instruments. Mm-hmm. They would call Paul. Paul was there, you know, 12 hours a day, you know, fixing tape recorders. And, you know, he was also a session musician. So Paul started out with the Chad Mitchell trio and John Denver on the road. And he got this gig at record plan. And anyway, that was like 1969 when they first opened, John Denver wanted actually him to be his, a musical director and go on the road with him. But wow. Paul was really, he just had a daughter. He just had a new baby and he really liked being close to home, yeah. you know? 
So we kept working there. Anyway, 10 years later, um, I joined this band and we're recording at Record Plant. So it's sort of like a, a dream, sort of surreal thing that happened, you know. But it, that was, and then that's when I got the bug about producing and, and I just felt like I was finally get, really getting into the music business, like, yeah. you know, the actual uh, heartbeat, you know, where it all occurs, you know, in New York. Before that, I was just kind of playing bars and trying to, you know, feeling kind of lost in how I would get from point A to point B in the yeah. business. Like I knew I wanted to get ahead, but I never knew how it would happen, you know. And I, I think if, you're, if your intention is strong enough, you just keep doing what you're doing. If, you, if you're talented and focused with a little bit of luck, you know, things just occur you know that that lead you to where you're supposed to be yeah that's it let's see you know you've got the you've got the passion you've got the talent and you know everything else just because you love doing what you're doing you just keep doing it don't you and and things hopefully yeah. then just fall fall into place and do that self perpetual sort of you know self perpetuating yeah, yeah yeah exactly what I, what i want to do is i want to spend some time in the 80s with you mark because like you i was born in the 60s my yeah. musical um, memories, the 70s was mostly listening to chart stuff here in the UK, everything, you know, I'd buy the singles that were in the charts. And it yeah. wasn't until 1979 that I got into rock music. And then, you know, I was like Kiss and Judas Priest and Scorpions and all those. And then, so, of course, through the 80s and all, all the big rock scene through the 80s was like fantastic for me. And, and you'll know where I'm going with this in a minute because um, I've always loved Lee Aaron. I've got oh. all of her, I've got all of her albums. Uh, oh, I saw her. She supported Bon Jovi over here on their seventy-eight degrees hundred Fahrenheit um, tour. So I saw right. I saw her over here uh, in Manchester, actually, on there. And for anybody that doesn't know, it's one of my favourite songs as well, "Line of Fire," which, which if you'd like to tell everybody the stories about "Line of Fire" and how important that song is to you, Mark. That oh man, that was uh, that was my first that was my first cut as a songwriter. Uh, 1985. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, <laughs> I think it's like thirty something, thirty six years. It's scary how, how quickly time's scary. gone since then. Say again. How hey. quickly time's gone? It's scary, isn't oh, it? Since my that? God, I mean, right? It's man, you gotta you gotta really try to. It's so important that we stay present and try to, <laughs> you know, enjoy this process, man. Because it is, you know, yeah. when you're a kid, it's like, man, I can't wait till I'm older. But no, you could wait. Because yeah. it's going to be faster than you know, you know? Yes. But Lee Aaron, um, it's funny. Um, my manager at the time, a guy by the name of Barry Bergman, um, you know, Barry kind of came out of the publishing side of the business. Um, he worked at Mark's Music in New York um, and was very instrumental in in the careers of, uh, of primarily uh, ACDC. Mm-hmm. He was one of the true believers from the beginning. Um, and Barry's mentioned in a lot of, a lot of, uh, biographies about ACDC in the, in the books and also meatloaf, um, Barry literally held the program director. I think it was WAPP in New York, held him almost like captive or, or like prisoner <laughs> in his apartment. He wouldn't let him leave until he agreed to play two out of three ain't bad, awesome. which was the song meatloaf sold a half a million records in New York on that first record on bad out of hell. Wow. And Barry, who's another one who's very focused and Barry believed in that record. And, uh, anyway, I met Barry a couple years after that. Um, and Barry saw something in me. I met him at a session, one of 
various producers was producing this artist that I was hired to play guitar for, but I was also writing songs then. I was about 21 years old mm -hmm. and I was really just getting, you know, I had a home studio and I was, I was just getting very serious about songwriting. Even stop, I even stopped gigs because I'd been gigging a lot for a bunch of years, even at that age, five, six nights a week, playing cover music and making a living, but just feeling like it was a means to an end. And, yeah. You know, I didn't feel it was going anywhere. And um, Barry was at this uh, session uh, when I was playing guitar and he came when I was doing guitar solos and, and he, he was very taken aback and he was really impressed and, he called me um, a couple of days after the session and I met him briefly, but I knew who he was because his producer had told me all about him. And he said, uh, Oh, Steven, his producer, uh, Stevie Scharf said, uh, you're writing some songs. You know, why don't you, and he had an office at Mark's music then it was, he was managing, but he had this little, they, they, they had an office there for him. I guess he was renting it or, after he left Mark's Music, he went to United Artists Publishing. He was actually the vice president of United Artists Publishing for about a couple of years. Then he went out on his own, had an office at Mark's Music. I go up to his office. I play him my songs. He says, I got some good news and some bad news. He says, I, see, I hear a lot of potential here, but you got you to gotta, you gotta just keep writing. Just go home, write, me some, write some more songs. You know, I'll listen to him anytime. So I felt like this was the next step in having someone yeah, in the yeah. business that I could bring my music to and get professional advice and someone that if they love something, they would have access to the record companies and producers and artists where you can actually have your music placed and mm -hmm. yeah. take it to the next level, you know? So anyway, a couple of years went by and, and I was bringing him music every couple months. Like I'd go home, I'd write 10 songs and I record them and, there was a lot of nights I'd go home, you know, with my, my head between my, uh, what, what did I say? Your head between your legs or your, I don't know. I was, you know, sad that yeah. he didn't love my songs yet, but I was determined. And, um, anyway, so I finally brought him some good songs. We, we went to on a trip to Toronto, met this guy, Paul Gross, who was working with Bob Ezrin. Mm. So Bob Ezrin, who produced Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Um, one of the great producers of all time was the producer of, of Lee Aaron's record. Paul, I guess he was the executive and Paul was the producer. Paul heard my song Line of Fire and, and felt it would be great for, for Lee, you know, for Lee Aaron. And, um, and that was, that was a, a fantastic occurrence because it, 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 it instilled the, uh, you know, the belief that things really could happen. It wasn't just a pipe dream, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great song as well, Mark it really is. It's oh, thanks man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. I had this, you know, I had the chorus, you know, and, uh, what was that? I into my line of fire. To love you my heart's desire. So I had that chorus and I had, I had some lyrics and Barry had another uh, songwriter that he was managing a guy by the name of Bob Halligan. Mm -hmm. Now Bob wrote, um, Bob was actually, when I met Bob, he was already a pretty successful songwriter. He wrote a uh, take these chains for Judas priest. He wrote uh, some, some heads are going to roll. Um, and he had, a, he had a, Bob had a bunch of hits, um, 
bunch of hits throughout the years. A song called was a big hit in the States. Don't close your eyes for a band called kicks. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Barry felt like um, he felt like maybe the verses need some help, you know? So um, Bob, who I was, I was actually making all Bob's publishing demos, you know, so Bob would come out to my house, my parents' house. I, I was still living with my parents yeah. in my early twenties. And we would make these demos of, of, um, of these songs, you know, that, that he would pitch, you know, to these different artists, you know, like Michael Bolton or Cher or a lot of these rock bands like Judas Priest. And he was getting a lot of cuts. So Barry felt like there's something really great here. Maybe just, just get together with Bob, you know? So actually Bob wrote, he wrote uh, like, like really 20, 25% of the song. Mm -hmm. And then we finished the demo and, and uh, me and Bob sang it and, and, and Paul loved it for Lee. So it, you know, yeah, it's funny how things occur, you know. It is, yeah. And I still play it loud today. It's, you know, all oh, these man. years. I, I, I haven't heard it in years, man. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm surprised I remembered the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> and, and another song, I mean, regular listeners to the show know there's, there's certain albums I call like perfect albums. I love them so much. And one yeah. of them, and again, you'll know where I'm going to go with this. One of them is Bonfire, Fireworks. I, yeah. oh, I love that album. There's the, every song on it I absolutely love. One of them being American Nights, which yeah. again, if you want to, you know, tell the listeners uh, all about American Nights. Again, such a great song. You know, um, Michael Wagner, Wagner, Michael Wagner was uh, producing Bonfire and... After I got the cut with Lee Aaron, it, it sort of all of a sudden, like kind of like the doors opened up that, okay, in the 80s, a lot of these rock bands or what they called hair bands, mm-hmm. they were, they would write, they would write album tracks. Like they, they were more performers than, than songwriters. So they needed, they needed help, you know, with writing radio songs, you yeah. know? So when after the Lee Aaron thing, all of a sudden, like it's like the floodgates kind of opened up. But Bonfire, um, they came. I think I was still living in New Jersey then. They came to my house, uh, like three or four of them, and um, and we wrote a couple songs that day. And I think one was American Nights. Yeah, and I think it, it actually did very well in, in Germany. And I, I guess oh, yeah. it was it was out in England. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much how how well it did in the states. You know, it's funny because you hear. You know, like uh, the music scene was so different here in the '80s than than Europe, you know, and 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 the UK. You yeah. Know? Um, but I wrote that, and then and then on the next record, I, I I think I had maybe a few more songs on the on the album after that. But American Nights was kind of the beginning of that. Yeah. Yeah, because you had who's 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 fooling who on who's the fooling who, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Man. Yeah. And again, yeah, it's you, crazy. You, you do you. You do your research, Dave. Well, I know it's, I, I love the album so much and the songs so much. So, like oh. I say, and again, regular listeners know that I, I only do interview shows with people whose work I really love, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, all your music, and we're going to come up to your new music as well. We're going to talk about that. But going into your musical history, I was, oh my God, they wrote that and that. <laughs> There's such a part of my history growing up. And, oh, you, know, that's awesome. and, you know, and seeing those bands, you know, I saw Bonfire on the Fireworks tour, I saw The Aaron back in 85. And, yeah. you know, it's again, listening to songs, it just takes you back to that, that period of time as well. You know, it's, it it's, does, it's good for man. the soul. I, I, it's funny. I just got the, uh, the test pressing for my album, which will be out in July mm. today. And I, 
my I had some old I had an old turntable. It didn't work anymore, so I went out. I needed a new turntable, and just the vinyl experience that oh, we grew up with. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you sit, you know, you sit on cross leg on the carpet. You'd open your album. Yeah, and you you know you, you you know you go to the turntable, you put the needle on the vinyl, you hear some scratches and pops, <laughs> yeah. and then you were transported to another dimension, mm -hmm. and you had this twelve by twelve, you know, like a book where not only a lot of times you had the lyrics, but you knew who the musicians were, yeah, you knew who the songwriters were, you knew who the technicians were, yes, yeah, I mean. It's like, and, and it's like, oh, and they're, they're giving thanks to this person. You go, I wonder who that person is. And then you'll yeah. see that person's name on another record. So it kind of gave you a, I think nowadays people get shit too fast, you know, and they're constantly bombarded with, with uh, sound bites yeah. and, and everything is so fleeting. I feel like we grew up in the Renaissance period where, you know, I mean, I absorb when I listen to a Jimi Hendrix record, or I listen to a Beatles record, or I listen to a Bob Dylan record. I felt like I was, you know, like they're inviting you into their home, you know, and, and it's like now it's like kids think kids think, you know, Britney Spears or uh, obviously, you know, I, I think Taylor Swift, you know, she essentially writes her songs. But most people don't know who the guitar players are, who yeah. the drummers are. I mean, we kind of we were such fans of the musicians in these bands. Oh, and, the, yeah. and then you found out, Oh, Bob Dylan wrote that song for, for the band or for the, you know, for this one or, or the staple singers, you know, like all this great music. And you realize how it was all this incestuous web of, you know, people helping each other create music. Yeah. Now it's, you know, bombarded with, you know, so much that you, just so just to be able to sit in a meditation and listen to a vinyl record, man. So I, I did that today. I had to listen to the test pressing. Oh, nice. And I just kind of got flooded with memories of being, you know, 13 <laughs> years old in my bedroom, you know. And then and then actually at the time to learn, like if it was a fast Johnny Winter lick or a Alvin Lee or a Jimi Hendrix guitar lick, it's like, how am I going to learn that, you know? Nowadays, oh, yeah. kids go to YouTube and they have someone yeah. that, you know, probably took the time when they were younger to do maybe what I did and slowed it. What I did was I recorded on a tape recorder and played back at half speed. <laughs> which, so you would hear the lick and it would be one octave, exactly one octave. So it would be the same key except an octave lower at, at half speed, you yeah. know? So, you know, if the lick, if the lick was fast, like, uh, but it would be it would be an octave lower, but it would be. <laughs> so you could go, oh, you know, and then and that's how you learn those licks, you know. That's how I learned those licks. Nowadays, play. you just go on YouTube and there's a guy, you know. It's like here's how you play this lick, and he slows it down, and he, you know, it's like you, you, it's like you don't have to be you don't have to be creative in in finding answers. It's like all the answers are there, so it's. It's like, I think there's something to be said for putting the work in and yeah. I think you get more out of it. It's more, it gets in your cells, you know? Yeah. Oh, most definitely. I mean, you've definitely put the work into it because you're, you know, you're renowned for being so hardworking and you've, and you've written and produced for so many people. I mean, please tell, tell the listeners, you know, some of the people you've written and produced for, because it's it, what, 
what a great list of names this is. Well, um, well, in recent years, I've been uh, I've been pre- uh, co-producing Stevie Van Zandt's records, you know, the Disciples of Soul. Um, back in the day, I'd, I'd written a bunch of songs with a guy by the name of Mitch Malloy, who was a great uh, like pop rock singer uh, on RCA Records, uh, a band called Helix. Um, in Canada, I, I actually uh, produced a couple of their records and probably had 15 cuts with them. Yeah, I saw those uh, in the 80s too. There's another band I watched in the 80s. Helix. They were big in the 80s, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. They're, they're still around, you know, they're still doing yeah, their thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, who else? Um, a band called Harem Scarum, a band from Canada, another, another one of these, you know, with Helix also, they had, they were, they were really good performers, mm-hmm. good musicians. But they didn't have hooks. They didn't have hooks in their songs for radio, which is the reason Mitch Malloy, you know, he just got signed to RCA. They weren't hearing hooks. So it's mm-hmm. so they would call a guy like me or Bob Halligan that had a sense of that sense of melody, memorable melodies, you know, to write with them. Um, I also uh, I wrote a couple songs, uh, a few songs, actually, with um, a guy by the name of Freddie Kersey and, and Steve DeMarkey. They were they were with the band. Um, I wrote with them when they were with the, with Alias, but before that they were Sheriff. So they had a yeah. they had a very big hit when I'm with you, uh, baby. Yeah. Oh, I get chills when I'm with you. When I met them, that album, which came out around 1985, was it was DOA. It was over. <laughs> so they had this great they made this great record. Nothing happened with it. And two years later, when they were like you know wondering what they were going to do with their lives some DJ in Las Vegas started playing the record and it caught on and it became a number one song. So how did things happen? Who the hell knows? You know, they just happened. Um, So anyway, so I I was friends with Freddie and and, uh, Steve. So we wrote, we wrote a few songs in the early nineties. Now what happened was when grunge came in, all this music that I was working on, um, I had hits. I had songs like Flying Up Charts. Mm-hmm. When grunge came in, sort of like the pop rock thing was, oh, it was basically yeah. like someone dropped a, an atomic bomb yeah. on it. Yeah. And it was essentially Nirvana. When t- smell like well, Teen Spirit, when that song came out, and then Soundgarden and all these bands, it just put the kibosh on pop, popular rock music, you know, yeah. like, like things that were on the radio. So that was, a, that was a rough time for a minute. It was like, and that's when I really started focusing on my own artistry, you know? But um, anyway, getting back to it, I wrote a bunch of songs with Alias. Like their their band was called Alias then, mm-hmm. Freddie and, and Steve. And the label was really excited about these songs. Grunge came in. They never put that album out until 2017. <laughs> I, get a, I, get a, I get a note from, from Steve DeMarkey, you know, uh, Freddie's uh, guitar player and writing partner from Alias. Mark, they're putting our song out that we wrote, it was like 26 years <laughs> earlier. It finally came out, you know, I mean, it's just, this business will, you know, back in the day, you would have to wait, literally wait a year after someone said they were going to record your song. You would have to wait a year to hear it, to hear like an acetate or maybe the final version or to find out that they decided not to put it on the album or, you know, so you kind of lived and died by all these events, you know? Um, And as you get older, I think you, you know, you learn to, uh, 
let these things you can't you can't personalize these things because they they'll kill you they'll yeah. they'll they'll take your life <laughs> you know yeah they yeah. could just constantly think about it all the time yeah exactly oh. exactly i'm really glad that you mentioned with you know memorable melodies and hooks and everything because so, some of the most memorable like earworms you could say that get into you uh, and that they're so short then that's how memorable they are it's for commercials because you've written some Again, when I was I was reading up some stuff about you with the commercial music that you made as well. I mean, please tell everybody yeah. about that because they are some of the most memorable because you've only got a set amount of time to, right. to get it out there. So it's got to be punchy. You got it. You need. Well, I mean, it used to be, I think when we were kids, TV commercials were like 60 seconds, like a minute. Mm. So you actually had you actually had time to get to your chorus. You know, it's like, don't bore <laughs> us, get to the chorus. You know, these were like. Uh, you would write a 30-second spot, you know, like a 30-second. And I'm a songwriter, so I wouldn't write like a – it wasn't in my nature. And by the way, in a million years, I never planned to ever write a TV ad. Mm -hmm. It was not something I had uh, seeked out doing. It's sort of just – I was writing with a, a friend of mine one day, this guy Marcus Wolf, a uh, great guitar player. And um, we were writing a song for an artist he was working with. And he got a call and somehow I met this guy at a, at a, at a jingle house, you know, who dealt with the ad agencies. Mm. And my friend said, uh, do you want to work on this guy Coke spot with me? You know, we, and you would just be submitting a demo. Yeah. I said, sure, man. Well, we'll you know, so we, we, we wrote this thing, submitted it that day and it didn't get chosen, but it, it let this guy, Tony know that I was a songwriter and I could do things quickly and I had a recording studio and, uh, Anyway, he started calling me to do these spots, you know, so I submitted a couple things that didn't hit. And then I think it was the third uh, thing he sent to me was a, it was an HIV and STD awareness commercial from Trojan condoms. So I'm thinking, you know, the first thing you think of with Trojan, Trojan, man, you know, it's like, some cor it's like, I'm not going to write some corny ass shit. Plus, when I look, you know, they send you just the picture, you know, so. So I'll, I use a, a program called Pro Tools. I record all my audio on Pro Tools. And it also has capability of, of uh, scoring to video. So I actually, I, I would drag this video clip. It was a 30-second clip into my Pro Tools session. And I, I put this clip on. And it's a couple, it's a black screen. And this is my introduction to what I'm writing for. Yeah, It's a black screen that says, one out of four people with HIV don't tell their partners. So I'm immediately engaged. It's like, this is fucked up. This is crazy, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it just made you think. It's like, okay, people are dying from AIDS, you know, HIV. And, you know, people need to tell people, you know, hey, man, you can't be selfish. You know, you, just because yeah, you need yeah. to have sex, you got to tell people what's up, yeah. you know. So I was really struck by this. And then it's, and then the black screen fades into this couple uh, holding hands on a couch. And, and I was just, I just felt like an emotional affinity to this concept. And I had this song laying around uh, a song called this life. And I just, I, I made a shorter, a short version. I, I think I, the first version I said was probably like a 60 second version. And the, jingle the guy from the jingle house loved it he sent it to the ad agency they loved it and um 
spent the next couple of weeks. They, they wanted me to try some edits. And anyway, it pretty much came back to where it originally was. And then, and it, it ran for a couple of years on, on, it was a very controversial ad also because of the subject matter. It's mm-hmm. anything, yeah. you know, puritanical society, you know, anything having to do with sex or outside the box uh, at that time would just, you know, cause controversy and people protesting against it. But it ran for a couple of years, you know, and it's like being a songwriter, it's mailbox money. You write this thing, you go to sleep at night and then these checks show up in your mailbox, you know? <laughs> so it's like, ah, oh, this is cool. I can, I could do my gigs. I could work on my records. And, and it's sort of like, this, this is like, you know, all of a sudden has become my, um, you know, my, uh, my sugar daddy, you know, yeah, my, yeah. Uh, <laughs> way of making a living without, you know, so he would just, he just kept calling with things. Then there was a, um, a, um, Activia yogurt spot that actually ran for, it probably ran for 12 years. Wow. Um, and it became uh, Activia. I don't know if that was a product that was out in Wales, but it was a, it was a very, they had Jamie Lee Curtis through the commercial and it just kept running and running and running. And same thing. It's like this mailbox money. It's like, <laughs> did that really happen? You know, then we did like an office Depot commercial, uh, like this parody on taking care of business by, uh, Bachman turn overdrive. Um, a, a few V8 commercials. And then, you know, it's just for a bunch of years, they just kind of kept coming in and I didn't, you know, I didn't have to seek it out. It was just sort of like, um, you know, it's like we were saying before, you stick, you stick to something yeah. and somehow the answers, they come, they occur, you know? And, and uh, if you're supposed to be doing something, I, I think, however you want to look at it, you know, God or the universe, or you're supported in it, you know, somehow you're, you're able to do what you were put here to do, you know? So um, I'm thankful for the commercials, you know? I Yeah. Yeah. And rightly so. So you should be, I mean, especially now, I mean, how, how much has it changed the way that musicians make their money from what it used to be to, to what it is now? It's, it's night and day, isn't it? It is. Yeah. There, there's no resemblance to when I grew up playing music. I mean, at first it was just, you know, you play in nightclubs, which that still exists. Um, you know, uh, but mainly, um, you know, you would put a band together, write some songs, get a record, hopefully get a record deal or get a, if you were a songwriter, get a song place and you would make a living this way, you know, or you'd meet an artist and you would produce their record. Or once I had success as a songwriter, I would get calls from record labels, especially when I would write songs with artists for their record. Then the label would say, why don't you just have Mark produce it? We, you know, we love these demos. Why don't we just, why don't we make a real record, you know, make it a completed record. Um, so now, I mean, that's what, I mean, the last bunch of years I've been touring so much because nowadays, unless you're touring like Stevie Van Zandt, you know, he needs to tour to sell records. You don't, the records that are, that are being bought today are essentially, essentially it's hip hop, you know, it's R and B and hip hop mm-hmm. and it's kids buying this music. And there's only, there's a few people that are selling millions of records. Yeah. Most people are se- selling, if they're lucky, tens of thousands, if they're really lucky, hundreds of thousands of records. Whereas before these would have been multi-platinum records, oh, yeah. you know, like yeah. tens of millions of records. Yeah. And now they're down to like a hundred thousand. And a lot of it's just being sold on 
tours as in, in, you know, at the merch stands. That's why the record companies got into all these 360 deals where before they never thought about merchandising and what sold, you know, hats and t-shirts, but now they, they, if they're going to distribute your records and give you money for promotion, they want a piece of everything. So it would be 360, you know, the whole enchilada. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you've mentioned Stevie Van Sant there and, um, Again, everybody would be dying to know your your history with him, and your continued working with him and the Disciples of Soul. Uh, I mean, what what's the the story with that? I mean, because that's such a great project to be involved with, and all of the work that you're doing as well. You know, uh, Stephen, who I mean, we've had many common friends throughout the years. Um, growing up playing music in New Jersey, you know, um, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go to the Pony. Stone Pony in Asbury Park. And I mean, there was a couple of years, every time I'd go to the Pony, Bruce would be there just hanging. He'd be hanging out. He was between record deals. He may have been in court, you know, actually with his first manager. So he had a lot of time. So he would come down to the Pony and sit in with these bands and Southside Johnny was in the area. They were just kind of getting started and making records. And Steven, of course, wrote all the Southside Johnny songs and was producing them. And then Stephen became an artist himself, you know, and he, and he left Bruce's, he left the E Street Band for a while. And so I became aware of Stephen at a young age and realized that he's, he's a great producer. He's a great writer. And then, you know, as I got older, I realized that, wow, this is the same guy that, you know, was very aware of the apartheid movement, anti-apartheid movement, and, you know, was instrumental in getting Nelson Mandela out of prison and, he wrote the Sun City song, which raised awareness about apartheid and what was going on in South Africa and the plight of South American uh, farmers, you know, that, you know, there was there was just all this oppression going on. And, you know, people in America and, you know, in a lot of a lot of societies in Western societies weren't even aware that there's there's these issues, you know, that, you know, so he brought to light a lot of these. He became very political, you know. Yeah. And what uh, I felt was raising awareness about things that needed to be, you know, known. So anyway, I, I got a call. Stephen was producing a Darlene Love's, um, what he called, Stephen named it Introducing Darlene Love. Now, Darlene Love sang on many of the hits from the 60s, all like the Phil Spector. She was part of the Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. And if you've, if anyone has seen the Wrecking Crew documentary, it, it's hard seeing because you really see where this great, um, this wealth of American music came from and when it, where it was recorded, you know, just like the Muscle Shoals documentary. It really gives you insight into where this music, you know, who was behind this music and how it came about. So Darlene was basically like Phil Spector's pet. She's this amazing singer. She had, she put out the, she sang all the songs on the, on the Phil Spector Christmas record. So it's this voice that you've heard your whole life, but Phil, who aside from being a genius was a maniac and a, and a narcissist, you know, would, would just kind of keep, you know, he, he, for whatever reason, he kept her down. Mm-hmm. He didn't want her to get as much light as she deserved. And Stephen, who was friends with her for many years, promised her in the early eighties that, one day he was going to produce a record for her. Now, 40 years later, you know, 35 years later, he's producing, introducing Darlene Love. 
So a couple of my friends, uh, Rich Mercurio and Lee Nadell, a couple of great uh, New York session musicians. Richie's uh, been a dear friend for many years. Um, they were playing on Darlene's record and they, they got the, they got me on the last song on the record, which was a Bruce Springsteen song called Night Closing In. Mm-hmm. So I went to the session. Um, Stephen was producing the record. So as soon as I met Stephen, we started just talking about this common ground that we had. Um, a dear friend of both of ours, a guy by the name of Kevin Cavanaugh, who was the original uh, Asbury Jukes uh, keyboardist. Stephen chose Kevin, you know, Kevin. Um, I'd been doing a lot of gigs with Kevin for years and we'd become very close friends. So we spoke, Kevin had just passed away a couple years earlier. So we, we were reminiscing about Kevin and the Jersey scene and all these people we knew in common. And so there was a, an immediate bond of commonality and, you know, it just felt like a, like a friendship immediately, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then we proceeded to spend the rest of the day working on this Bruce Springsteen song. Stephen rearranged it as he does most things, he's, he gets into his arrangement uh, head and he wanted, he decided to make like a Phil Spector, a big wall of sound arrangement of this, of this song for Darlene, which means, so we recorded initially, he arranged the, uh, the rhythm section, you know, which was me, bass, drums, keyboardists. um, And, came up with this arrangement and then needed to create a wall of sound after the bed, after the basic tracks were recorded. So everyone went home and it was just me and Steven in the studio. And Steven was having me play these, um, these Bolero guitar parts, these, you know, uh, right. So, and that was on a 12 string. And then we'd record the whole song with this part which was not only a rhythm, but it was, it was creating this landscape. He had me do that four times. Oh, right. Okay. And then, and then I would play, there would be, a, let's say an electric 12 string part. And I would play that after I, you know, you do the whole track, play that four times. And then there was another electric part and that was four times. So Steven realized that he could throw these things at me and, and I would be able to, pick up on them quickly yeah. so we just we just hit it off and literally it was a 10-hour day what was supposed to be a three-hour recording session turned into a 10-hour day and and uh so we just kind of created this bond that first day months later the album's coming out and steven calls and says um we're doing darlene's cd release we're going to do uh, a show at the paramount theater in asbury park and we're going to do two shows at the Whiskey uh, Agogo in in Los Angeles, and I'm not really that happy with our band. Hmm. Um, and I want you to go down to a rehearsal. I want you to just check out what's going on there, and you know, get back to me what you think. You know, now he was supposed to be there the first night. I'm on my way to the rehearsal. He says I'm not going to be able to make it, so just you know, just go check things out. You know, play through the music with everybody. And I realized that Darlene, who's, and Stephen will say, and I would agree, is one of the one of really the true greatest vocalists in pop music of all time. And he, uh, I, I, I reported back to Stephen. I said, the band needs help. You know, so we had this one show. We had the big show. Literally, Stephen, we had a sixty-piece orchestra. It was three timpani players, percussionists playing like timpani 
12 strings in a section, violins, viola, cellos, brass, 12 pieces brass, 12 piece brass. Plus, you know, underneath that is just a rock and roll rhythm section, two guitars, bass drums, two keyboardists, three Darlene's regular three background singers, plus a 30 piece uh, gospel choir. Whoa. Now, this now, if you could picture the, the Paramount Theater in Asbury Park, Stephen, who had the curtains closed, when this the curtains opened, it was like Oz. You know, it was like <laughs> and unfortunately no one videotaped. Oh no one videotaped. Stephen, I mean to this day is so frustrated that it never it was never captured properly. Because this reveal was like it's so notice so picture this all these layers. It's like the the strings were up here, you know, the, the horns are up here, the percussionist on this is on a second tier. Mm-hmm. Underneath was the drummer, you know, the, the the guitar players, you know, the keyboardist. Darlene makes this grand entrance through the middle, you know, like like the wizard, you know. Yeah. And and Steven did these shows with us. So now Stephen was singing uh, a, one duet with Darlene on a, a, a song that uh, Elvis Costello wrote for the record, a song called uh, Still Too Soon to Know. Mm-hmm. And um, Stephen would do three of his songs at these shows. And I love Darlene. You know, Darlene's fantastic. But f- for me, the highlight was doing these Stevie Van Zandt songs. I uh, love uh, "Love on the Wrong Side of Town," which he wrote for Southside Johnny with Bruce. Bruce uh, Southside and Stephen wrote that, and then a song called "Until the Good Is Gone," which is on Men Without Women, Stephen's first record, and a song called "Forever," which I believe was on the same record. That that for me was the rock and roll highlight of the night because we're just we're playing primal <laughs> rock and roll with Stephen, who's such a badass great singer, great guitar player. And after the first show, I, I went up to Steve and I go, I go, man, you need to be, I, you need to be doing this, man. People need to be experiencing this every night. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe I planted a seed by saying <laughs> that, you know, anyway. So Steven says we did that first show and, and we go to LA. Steven says, we'll get through these gigs. I want you to put a whole new band together for her. He rearranged all of her Christmas songs. Darlene's big season is Christmas, you know. She does the whole Bill Spector catalog, you know, of of, uh, Christmas songs. Christmas Baby, Please Come Home, which she did on David Letterman every every Christmas for 30 years. Um, uh, All, you know, all these great Christmas, you know, songs that we grew up with, you know. Steven rearranged all the songs. and, And after I put this band together... And we went out and, and I became Darlene's musical director. Steven said, I want you to, you know, I want you to protect Darlene, protect these arrangements, make sure she has who she needs as, as, as personnel, as musicians. And I spent the next couple of years on the road with Darlene and, and you know, protecting Steven's, uh, you know, artist and, and his, his vision. You know? yeah. So then a couple of years into it, I get a call from Steven that um, there's uh, this guy, Leo Green, who some people out there may have heard of. Leo Green's dad was one of the um, 
big promoter agents, you know, kind of like um, uh, Sharon uh, Osborne. Yeah. Uh, but but her last name, what was her dad was uh, was his last name Arden. Anyway, he was yeah. the big he was the big promoter. Yeah, in, yeah, in, he was. In, yeah, in, in London certainly. And Leo's dad, I forget Leo's dad's first name, but Leo Green's dad was another big uh, promoter in, in, in there. Anyway, so. Leo found out that uh, Stephen was going to be at Bill Wyman's 80th birthday, which was at the, it was held at the, um, the O2 in the O2 arena in, um, in London. Yeah. So Steve, so he said, why don't you come and perform at it? So Stephen hadn't done his music in 25 years. He hadn't <laughs> done anything, you know, he do with Bruce, he'd done the Sopranos, mm. he did Lilyhammer, but, he kind of put that whole artist thing aside. So he calls me up and he says, I got, it's a, it's a one-off Leo Green called me. It's this blues festival at the O2 in London. And can you put a band together? We'll rehearse it in New York at my studio. And then we'll go do the show. So I, I called my best guys. I called Rich Mercurio on drums uh, Jack Daly, uh, Rich Mercurio's uh, Sarah Borales, uh, Dina Menzel, you know, he's played with all these great artists, great drummer, dear friend, Jack Daly, Lenny Kravitz, bass player for 15 years. Uh, great music. He's played on countless hit records, you know, uh, everyone from Joss Stone to Iggy Pop to Janet Jackson. I mean, just everything, you know, um, Andy Burton, uh, another great musician friend. Uh, was with John Mayer, toured with John Mayer for a few years, uh, Cindy Lauper, Rufus Wainwright, really great musician. So I called my guys as I knew I, w- I wanted to, I had to call the best of the best for Stephen, you know? Yeah. And Eddie Mannion, who uh, was Stephen's saxophonist with Southside Johnny, Eddie was was going to deal with the horns and, and put all the horn arrangements together. So me and Eddie joined forces and and we um, we started rehearsing. I, you know, I, I got a bunch of New York musicians to rehearse. We went to England and hired horn players and background singers in England to do the show. And they were fantastic, by the way. But me and Eddie had to go over and teach them the music before the show. Yeah. Like we went about a week before. And to our, you know, uh, happy surprise, the musicians were very well prepared. The rest of the band came over, we rehearsed, we did the show. It was a huge success. And during, during the rehearsals for the show, Steven said, man, this feels like a, like oh, we did 22 songs, you know? So it was like Southside Johnny songs, songs that Steven has written for Pearl Jam, like I'm a Patriot, his solo, solo, uh, solo tunes, um, some covers, um, Grooving is Easy by uh, Electric Flag. Anyway, he felt like he had this great body of work and he wanted to make a record. Mm. So he says, when we get back to New York, we're going to go into my studio and we're going to make a record. So this is the Soul Fire record. Yeah. Um, we spent about six weeks making this record. And in the middle, Stephen realized, you know, that how much I was, a lot of, a lot of artists don't realize what, people are doing they're kind of very self-absorbed possibly or just not really concerned with anything other than you know what concerns them what's going to affect them you know but steven 
who has been in the trenches of many artists, you know, certainly Bruce, and he's worked with Bob Dylan and all these greats, you know. Steven said, you, me and the engineer, Jeff Sanoff, I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and I want to make you co-producers on my record, which is, it's not really, you know, he didn't have to do that. Mm, yeah, That exactly. spoke volumes about who he is as a person. Yeah. You know? He said, I'm going to give you points on the record. You know, anyway, we finished the record. So to me, Stephen can do no wrong. I mean, he's always been one of the most generous, you know, he cares about people. He cares, you know, that, uh, that people are comfortable, that they're, you know, expressed, fully expressed, you know? So we finished the record, Bob Clearmountain mixes the record. Bob's mixed all the Bruce records, all the Steven records, probably half the records in your collection, Bob Clearmountain is next, <laughs> yeah. you know, one of the great mixers of all time. Um, Steven has two months left with uh, Bruce. They had a two month Australian tour. Steven says, when I come back, we're going to, we're planning our tour, the disciples of soul. And literally I had two months and I said, you know what, man, I better go in and make my record. Something told me I should go in and, you know, record my new record. Mm -hmm. So I, I called, you know, my guys called Jack and Richie and Andy. And we went in three days, we recorded about 15 of my songs. Wow. And yeah, I mean, we're, we work fast yeah, and you know, we've fast. been working together so long and we have a, we have a pretty good level, you know, like pretty high level of communicating together. We record the 15 songs. I do some preliminary mixes and just leave it. You know, I just, Steven, it was now time to focus on Steven, making sure he had the right band, the right band members, putting the show together, getting the, you know, every, every aspect of the show, getting the right sound engineer. So we got a guy, a British uh, engineer by the name of Richard Sharrett, one of the best in the business. Um, Richard, you know, he's, he's done uh, Peter Gabriel and, you know, he's fantastic. You know, he's, so Steven mixed the orchestra with Gabriel. So we felt like he would be perfect. You yeah. know, Gary true, uh, who was the tour manager another Brit, uh, Gary, um, suggested, um, a lighting technician that, that we used for a while. And Gary's one of the great tour managers of all time. And we, we just created this family, this road family, and literally from that time for three years, we made, we, we do two tours. We usually do Europe and the States, the UK. We'd make a record. We'd go out we do Australia, UK, Europe, States. So for three, over three years, it was nonstop disciples of soul, you know? Um, and it really created a tremendous bond, you know, amongst oh, the band yeah. and, and, and Steven is, is to me, is like, he's family, you know, he's like, uh, he's like a brother. He's like the brother I never had, you know? So during, um, so we finished the tour. We do our last show at the Beacon Theater in New York City. November 6th, 2019. Um, and we all go on our merry way, you know? Um and of course, we won't spend too much talking about it. But a couple months later, this thing happened. Yeah, yeah. Which they call, you know, what the, this thing, you yeah. know, this this crazy pandemic that's affected everyone's lives. So in the midst of it, about a month in, you know, me and my girlfriend, it's like, it's all over. It's Armageddon. It's yeah. the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. 
we're eating pizza every night, drinking, you know, two, three <laughs> bottles of wine. And then when I woke up one day and go, after about two or three weeks of that, we both woke up and it's like, we got to get serious. You know, it's like, you know, you, you have a choice, you know, this is everyone challenges. People have challenges in their life. Everyone has challenges every day. This is just another one. Yeah. So you have a choice. You could be productive or you could just, you know, live the life of, you know, debacle and, and <laughs> destruction and, you know, let's buy an eight ball cocaine, yeah. you know, let's get some heroin, you know, you could do that, you know, you so you have this choice. Yeah, yeah, of course. Fortunately, none of that happened, you know, <laughs> but I was, so I, I, I kind of got a handle on things. Anyway, I was, I was talking to Steven one day and he says, what are you doing, man? I go, well, I'm, I'm actually finishing mixes on my record that I, recorded four years ago before you whisked us away into the, uh, into the uh, Stevie Van Zandt abyss, you know, and uh, the magical mystery tour, you know, um, he said, Oh man, he said, I'd love to hear that. You know? So I, I said, great. I, I sent them, I sent them quite a few songs, probably, probably all 15 songs. And he calls me back. And once again, he said, Steven said, I have some good news and I got some bad news. And I'm thinking, Give me the bad news, man. Let's get that out of the way, you know? So he says, he didn't, he, he didn't, he, he said, the good news is I love a lot of these songs. There's some really good songs here. The bad news is I don't think it's done yet. I think, I think, I think we should spend some time working on this together, mm-hmm. which I was elated about because I, you know, I respect, I know how, how brilliant he is as a producer and arranger, you yeah. know? So we spent the next couple months Never got in the room together. We just, we did it over the phone and, and, you know, safe and social distance, whatever, you know, and we uh, worked on the arrangements together. I, I would have friends of mine that had recording studios sing vocal parts, um, any instrument changes I, I would do in my studio. Um, and in a couple, two or three months, the album was done and, and uh, I mixed it. I mixed it in my studio. And um, this guy, uh, Bob Ludwig, mastered the record. Now, when I was a kid, sitting cross-legged on the floor, looking yeah. at my records, I go, oh, Bob Ludwig mastered this record, too. <laughs> oh, Bob Ludwig mastered this. You know, so I was very familiar with Bob. In fact, when I produced some Helix records years ago, I would, I would always call Bob to, to master. You know, he's, he's one of the great mastering engineers. Now, for those at home that don't know what mastering is, uh, when you mix a record, you're you're balancing all the instruments. You're creating a completed picture and balance of you know the relationship between where the drums sit in the mix and and the bass and the guitars and the vocal and it's it, it, you're completing the sound. You're completing the overall complexion of 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 a record, yeah, uh, sonically. And then the mastering guy, what he does, it's like it's sort of like the um, the icing. Um, he does the final EQ. It's called equal equalization of the, of the higher frequencies, the mid range frequencies, the lower frequencies, and something called compression and limiting, which kind of evens everything out. So when you put a record on or you put a CD on the whole record, it's not like one song is really loud and one song is really soft. It makes it more consistent. Um, and it's really like, you know, it's really the icing on the cake, you know, and, and Bob, so we, we had Bob master the record and then, um, 
anyway, that's like my my Stephen journey, which continues. You know, Stephen co-produced the record with me, and uh, we just released my first single a couple weeks ago, and the, the album yeah. will be out in July. And so now we're making videos and doing what what we can to promote. You know, uh, the, the the singles, and and uh, fortunately, we're getting a great response. You know, people yeah. loving it. Oh yeah, I mean, I listened to Shattered a good few times now. I really love it, and. I mean, there's little bits in it as well. I'm a sucker for some slide guitar, Mark. And there's oh, there, awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, so there's some of that in there. Yeah, G- give me some slide guitar, and I'm in there. It's fine. <laughs> oh, Dave, I'll send you. Uh, there's a link. There's um, there's a magazine in the states called Guitar World. Um, so I did. Um, it's like a video series that they do, and it's actually I'm I'm demonstrating how the slide part is played on Shattered, mm-hmm. the first song. I'll send you the link. You know, Brilliant. we'll exchange. Uh, digits you know yeah yeah and definitely if you like slide you'll enjoy it oh you know? yeah i love slide guitar it yeah talks about you know just how it's implied how it's applied to the song you yeah know? and then a couple uh, another couple songs um we did videos for those two which will be released as we release our singles and we're doing you know full-blown music videos and you know the whole we all leading up to the release in july Oh, well, that's great. I mean, people listening, you know, they follow us now on social media. We've got the website. We'll be promoting all of those and putting links up to the to the videos oh, and everything, too. It'll be great. great so it's, it's July, then, is it, for the actual release date of the album? July 9th. July 9th is the official release date of the album. Um, I, I, I literally just got the test pressings yesterday. I listened to them on my turntable today, and uh, everything sounds great. Now it's uh, the printer will just finish up the artwork and everything. And uh, Excellent. Yeah. And... Um, and I, I actually, I, um, and I'm sure you, you, you'd announce this, but um, I, my first single, Shattered, I, we're actually selling the vinyl single, and we're, we're signing. I'm signing the singles. You know, if any, any friends or fans out there that would like, um, and we're, we've been selling them in, in Europe, and the UK, and the States. And uh, if you go to my website, markribbler.com, I have my previous albums there, and my, my new single. And obviously, things are. Things, it's been a rough year, and and I greatly appreciate everyone's support out there. It's and and we've we've had a really wonderful outpouring of people showing their care good. and concern and good. and enjoying the music. So that's it's 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 been a it's been a good time. It's been a real bright light, you know, in the midst of uh, you know a challenging year for people. You know, oh so. yeah. Well, I'll put I'll put all the links on the podcast notes. They'll be up on our website too. And then people Thank can go and support. Which we always say with all the music based shows, we always say you know support these people buying the music buy the merch support them in whatever way you can and get the word out there i'm really looking forward to the new album uh, i'm really looking forward to at some stage you coming back over here and then oh, we can meet in person and you know maybe record another show together in person that'd be great oh and absolutely maybe when we get closer to the record uh, release uh, we can do something definitely and um like i mentioned before we steven the disciples of soul were we played in cardiff uh probably august I think it was August of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, we played at the O2 Academy. It was a, and just love, we love playing for UK audiences, man. And oh, now, it'd be great to, you know, get you guys back over here. It'd be fantastic oh man, it's just you. great. You know, we, I mean, we play, we always, we always do a bus tour. Like usually we fly, but we do a bus tour of, of UK and, and uh, you know, we, and you know, we play Newcastle and Birmingham and, and, you know, we play all over London, all, you know, we just, uh, one of our favorite places, you know, just great music audiences now. Fingers crossed that you can. Yes, we're going to <laughs> do it. It's going to happen, Dave. <laughs> well, 
Well, for the sake of the edit, Mark, we shall say goodbye, but it's been so good having a chat with you. Uh, not for the last time, I hope. And yeah, hope we meet soon and we chat again oh, soon. Absolute pleasure, Dave. Thanks for making me feel so at home, brother. You're welcome, Mark. Thank you. See you again. And the alarm bell, as always, brings to an end another interview show. Again, hopefully you enjoyed it just as much as I did recording it. And it would be great to get Mark back on the show at some point in the future. Many more stories to be told, I'm sure. In the meantime, please visit our website, 60mw.co.uk. Numerical 60, not alphabetical. There are links on there to everything that we do. All of the format shows that we do, news, reviews, the links to our social media, Twitter, Instagram, at 60MW Podcast, and much, much more. Hopefully, you're listening to this, you're a regular listener, thank you, and of course you visit the website, there's always stuff going on there for you to have a read and have a listen to. Until the next show, which will not be far away, we're pumping out shows twice a week at the moment, so uh, again, if you've enjoyed this interview show, there's many more interview shows to listen to, there's all of the other format shows too. So let's finish the show with a song from Mark's upcoming solo LP, The Whole World Awaits You, this song is called shattered. But I